Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Make partners do things they otherwise wouldn't be inclined to do because they've been benefiting from the status quo. You do have to seem sure of yourself and confident, and and and, and this blurry line between overconfidence and, and you know getting having essentially the reality distortion field fold back on itself, so you can't actually see what the universe is trying to tell you about your idea, is is a huge peril for entrepreneurs. So you know hitting the right balance because if you're tentative, if you're sort of blowing with the wind and in a sense, too flexible, it isn't going to work. But on the other hand, if you're heavy. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Tom Eisenman. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Eisenman, yep, that's it. <laughs> okay, so tell us about Harvard and the book and consulting and, and uh, give, us the, give us the quick overview on the Tom story. So I'm a professor at Harvard Business School. I've been there for 24 years. And before that, got my doctorate at Harvard Business School. And before that, spent 11 years in management consulting at McKinsey. Uh, when I left, I was the co-head of their media and entertainment practice, sort of movies and books and TV, all that stuff. And before that, an MBA at Harvard Business School. And before that, a little more consulting and, and then uh, Harvard College before that. So there's a, there's a bunch of Harvard in there. It doesn't, doesn't take a lot of imagining. And, and the previous time was at Booz, is that right? At Booz Allen? Yeah, that, that was two, two years between college and yeah. MBA. So I really want to talk about the book. Before that, though, at McKinsey, tell me, tell me what that looks like. Not every, you know, everybody knows the name McKinsey, but not everybody immediately thinks media and movies and what's going on in the entertainment world. Yeah, boy, that was a long 27 years ago. So the, the McKinsey people would know today is identical in, in some important ways, sort of the commitment to solving hard problems for clients, but I'm sure very, very, very different. You know, it's it's many times the size when I left. Yeah, entertainment and media was tricky because there's so much personality. I mean, you, you live it, you know it. And to give advice to people who are creating product, creative products, movies and books and so forth, you know, they don't necessarily want a bunch of, of recently minted MBAs coming in and telling them what movies they should make or what TV shows they should make. 
So I, I had a television broadcasting network as a client, and we uh, we observed that they bought two episodes of all of the TV shows that they run, the, the sitcoms and the hour-long dramas. And if a show failed, they only ran one episode and they burned off the other one. They just sort of kept it in the refrigerator. And we said, well, that seems like a waste. Why don't you uh, run it on a night when you aren't going to get much audience anyway, maybe Saturday night. And, and we pressed and we pressed and, and we can be, we could be very persistent. So they did it and they, inside the broadcasting network, they nicknamed it McKinsey Theater and, 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 and didn't love us for that. Basically, because their, their bonuses were based on being number one in the ratings. And if you, if you run these shows that didn't work, it's not a good way to earn your bonus. It's tricky to think about incentives and, you know, you think about like a simple cliche, like you get what you pay for, right? You wonder how often with our sales teams or with our joint venture partners, or, you know, if, if you're, if you're raising a commercial real estate fund like us and you're considering, you know, working with either broker dealer or one of these equity crowdfunding forms, stuff like thinking about like what, you know, what you're paying people to do or are you paying, you know, are you paying your salespeople to be selfish, you know, and yeah, I mean, unintended consequences of comp, right? Well, or intended, you know, if it's designed, well, you, you do get what you, you get what you measure, you get what you pay for. And it's actually a theme in the book. So a lot of the entrepreneurs that I study take venture capital and that model, which, which, you know, well, is all about gigantic returns on a handful of investments and, and hopefully, you know, enough and enough 10 and 20 and hundred fold returns on the handful of winners to cover the sideways, you know, sort of barely made money or more likely lost all your money. And that works well for a venture capitalist if they can get the formula right. But an entrepreneur just has, they don't have a portfolio with 60 investments in it. They have this one thing. And, and if their risk um, reward preferences, if their temperament is not to swing for the fences, they shouldn't be taking venture capital. And, and some people do. Yeah. Well, I really want to talk about the new book, Why Startups Fail. Before we do that, what what's one takeaway from the entertainment business that that stayed with you through these years? Oh, you, you know, in, in academia, there's this perception that Rupert Murdoch um, can't exist. Rupert Murdoch, m most of your listeners, I'm sure, will will know him as the uh, as the chairman of News Corp, Fox Broadcasting, and. 20th Century Fox Studio, et cetera, et cetera, and newspapers all over the world and magazines and books all over the world. You know, academics think that no human could be the architect of strategy over something as big and complicated as News Corp. But as a consultant, I saw it all the time. So I was baffled when when I started my doctorate and learned that folks folks like Rupert Murdoch shouldn't exist. You know, there he was, and and he would dive into one of his businesses, you know, something would get in trouble in China and he'd fly to China and, you know, spend weeks or months fixing it. And then he'd move on to the next thing. And he really had grasp of just a tremendous complex network of, of relationships. And that got me all, that got me very, very interested in the kind of CEO who could drive strategy from the top, as opposed to letting it emerge from the bottom of the organization. That's, that's, that's what I studied for my first few years as an academic. Top-down strategic decision making. So, can can you for people who maybe feel a bent more that direction? Can you give any advice? Can you give any just tips of of how to do that well, or what you think Rupert does well that 
you know, I'm sure the guy's made a lot of mistakes in life, but maybe some of the things that he he has done well worth emulating. I, I think sequentially shifting attention. I mean, you can't do it all all the time. So he he, he had very good judgment about about how to focus in on what really mattered in the moment. Trusted lieutenants who, and for somebody as powerful as a Murdoch, John Malone, if you if you sort of know the Titan who built the biggest US cable TV system company was this kind of CEO. I spent a lot of time studying, it was fascinating. And so these trusted lieutenants who are strong enough to take the helm themselves when, when circumstances allow, but also flexible enough to make room for the chairman CEO to sort of step in and, and drive things. It, it, it takes a, a special kind of person to, to have the strength and the flexibility to, to make room for, and, and, and the less effective moguls will just surround themselves with yes men um, and women, yes men and women. And, and, and I think the best of them manage to, to find that strength. You wonder, like the modern Elon. I don't. I don't know how Musk manages, but you know he's he's growing into that kind of 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 a tech mogul, and and, and he's going to run into the same issues if he if he doesn't have people that can sort of tell him when he's off base, he will get into trouble. So far, so far it's working. Yeah, that's great insight. It does. It's interesting that that does make me think different about what you know. What does that selection process look like? You know, when Warren Buffett's figuring out a company to to run or to to buy you know he doesn't he never wants to show up at dairy queen he wants to just cash the checks right and so selection is different in that case you know yeah yep well tell us about the book so the book asks why do startups fail and asks about that thinking that too many fail depends how you, what you define as a startup and how you define failure sort of what the failure rate is but anyway you sort of slice it it's high right and 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 almost certainly a majority of startups failing probably if you look at venture capital backed startups a good round number would be 2 out of 3 and we we want some failure we we want entrepreneurs to try new things risky things and and if you sort of took failure rates down to zero, it'd be bad for society. So we want some failure, but we want good failures where people have an idea and, and they find a quick and efficient way to figure out if it's a good idea without wasting resources, wasting time, wasting people's money. And so that's the goal of the book is to, if, if people are going to take a risk, let's make sure they don't fail because they've made mistakes that could be avoided. There'll always be some misfortunes you can't avoid. COVID will happen and wipe out tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of companies. And there's not much we can do about that. We can, you know, sorry for the entrepreneurs that were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But a, a lot of startups fail because people make mistakes. And some of those mistakes are avoidable, that they, they fall into um, recurring patterns. And so the book puts a spotlight on those patterns, asks what you can do to avoid them and, and anticipate them. And it does that for early stage startups. And it turns out that late stage startups, startups that have sort of matured for three, five years, and in many cases, hired hundreds of employees, maybe raised hundreds of millions of dollars, still have an alarmingly high failure rate. And when one of these things fails, boy, it leaves a giant steaming crater in the landscape. And these are the ones we hear about and read about. The, the early stage failures, unless you happen to know the entrepreneur, aren't going to be on your radar. But the, but the Ther when Theranos fails and sort of burns through a billion dollars, um, it gets a lot of attention. 
And then the last part of the book says, sort of shifts the perspective perspective to the founder and says, okay, you did your best. Um, you, you tried to anticipate and avoid the recurring patterns, but you're still on a path to failure. How do you figure out whether and when to pull the plug? Turns out to be a hard thing to do. How do you fail well in the sense that you, you preserve your relationships, your integrity, um, your reputation? And, and then having failed, how do you recover from it? It hurts. I mean, it's incredibly painful. And, and there's a healing process that has to happen before the entrepreneur can typically actually reflect on, on what happened and, and what they can learn from it and then figure out if they should get back on the horse again. So that's the book. Well, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little sad that it doesn't come out till the 30th because I typically try to get a copy on Audible and listen to it before the guest comes, you know. So I'm looking forward to it coming out. But can we go through some of these patterns and how to avoid them? Sure. Yeah. You want to do early stage or late stage? Early. Early. Okay. So Tom, I'm surprised you don't know. I'm just looking for free consulting for all my startups. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You do some late stage investing too. So we should spend some time on that one. So early stage patterns, there are three of them. The first I call good idea bad bedfellows. And that's what it sounds like. The entrepreneur actually has a pretty good concept, but can never get the big T team together. And and by that, I mean the the co-founders, the rest of the team, the investors who, besides the money they're going to put in, should be adding value. And in in a lot of cases, entrepreneurs will have strategic partners because um, an entrepreneur starts with nothing. So they'll um, rely on somebody else to provide distribution or or customer service or, or underlying technologies. And good, bad, good idea, bad, bad fellows is, is the um, entrepreneur just not quite getting the resources, the, the team together to the point where you can actually execute on the good idea. That's one. And I'll, I'll come back to each of these and, and, and elaborate. The second one is false start, just like track and field or swimming. You know, some, an athlete jumps the gun, literally jumps the gun and, and is usually penalized in some way for that. In this case, the entrepreneur has a vision burning bright of, of the problem they want to solve and the solution for that problem. And like every entrepreneur, great entrepreneur with a bias for action, just gets going. Let's build it and sell it. And what they've done is they've skipped the upfront process of really understanding, is there an unmet customer need here? And do if there is, do I have the right solution out of, out of many different ways you can solve this problem? Is this the best one? And as a result, their first effort is a false start. It's a miss. The, the product misses the mark. You can pivot away from that, right? Sort of pivot toward the, the, a better version of the product, a, a, a different customer segment, a different solution. But the point is you've only got so much time. If you've raised outside capital, it's going to run out. And unless you've made a certain amount of progress, you're not going to be able to raise more. And if you burn up a third of your capital on, on, on a bad version of your solution, that's just substantially increases your failure odds. So so that's the second one. And we can go into why people. Uh, yeah. L- l- looks let's, like no, I, I want to dig into this. When you think about what to do about that, when you think about how to actually confirm it's a need instead of just sitting around the boardroom table with your co-founders, drinking your own Kool-Aid, taking, you know, one or two light yeses as like a, oh yeah, we've got product market fit. What in, what do you feel like are, are the answers for, for genuinely confirming that customer need? Yeah. So the good news on this one is we've got a wealth of of advice and know-how on, on how to really get a handle on, on problem and solution early on. 
I saw one of your recent episodes was on lean. Was it lean startup stuff or lean manufacturing? We do both. It might have been Steve Blank talking about like customer discovery in yeah. lean startup. Is that the one, or was so, it one of the manufacturing? Oh, bingo. Ones? Yeah. Okay. No, the, no, that's that's exactly where I'm going. So, so Steve Blank and Eric Reese are the the godfathers of the lean startup movement. And lean startup movement is is basically it applies the scientific method to a startup. It says have an assumption, be specific about it. If you want to be fancy, we can call it a hypothesis. And we're going to test the hypothesis and we're going to run the test in a way that's fast and efficient. Takes no more resources than then then we need to get reliable feedback on whether the assumptions true or false and 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 blank and reese and a whole bunch of others have have really honed the discipline of doing this but the key thing is people focus in on the tail end of that process it's called a minimum viable product sort of the the the, the smallest set of features you need to put a, a real product into the hands of a real customer and see if they actually are going to use it in the way you expect and pay for it and that's actually, if you listen to Blank carefully, the tail end of a long process. He talks about customer discovery interviews, and, and he forces entrepreneurs to get out of the building and just talk to people. And, and, and you're not pitching them on your solution, like what every entrepreneur wants to do. They're so excited about this thing. They immediately launch into a pitch, and will you buy it? And there's a time and place for that, but it's much later in the process. What you have to do early on is just understand, do you have this problem? What are you doing today? You've got some existing solution for the problem. What's wrong with it? What, what's your dissatisfaction? So interview, 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 and, and all the while trying not to hear what you want to hear because the entrepreneur wants confirmation and and what the scientific method is all about is falsification, right? It's, it's, you're really only learning something if, if your assumptions prove false and then you got to rethink things and, and so forth. So it's this, it's this upfront customer interviewing and there's other techniques you can use, ethnography, focus groups and so forth. And, and that's all part of the thing. So that helps you figure out, have you got the problem and zero in on the right customer segment and the right set of un, unmet needs for those customers. Then you have to generate a bunch of solution ideas. And, and, and professional designers, the folks at places like IDEO do this really well, right? They will, they'll, they'll develop a persona, sort of the archetypical customer you want to go after, figure out a bunch of solutions and prototype and test them all. But, but not literally prototype to the point where you got a working product. You know, this, these are paper prototypes or they're really rough, rough models. And again, you're getting feedback and then you're zeroing in on which of them seem most promising. And that's the point at which you launch an MVP. So there's all this work and, and entrepreneurs, because they want to get started, they skip the upfront part of lean startup and jump to the juicy part, the, you know, the part that lets them build a thing. And, and so <clears throat> there's, there's all sorts of reasons why. There's the bias for action. An entrepreneur's identity is somebody who makes things happen. And so they get a lot of reinforcement. Some of the rhetoric of lean startup actually reinforces this. You know, they talk about fail fast and, and just do it. And, 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 and you know, I, I think people think they're running lean. And, and in some ways they are. The, the, the MVP hasn't wasted much, but they've skipped these steps. And these steps only take, you know, a month, two months, and, and, you know, and, and it can buy you four or five months on the other side, you know, if, if, you've, if you've avoided a false start. You know, so there are other reasons for the false start. A lot of, of businesses are founded by engineers. Engineers love to build things. And then a lot of my MBAs are not engineers, but they've heard over and over again that the secret to a great startup is great product. And the only way you're going to get a great product is if you have the right technical talent on board. And because they're 
extroverts, they're good at networking. They go off and find a technical co-founder or a vice president of engineering. And once that person's on board, especially if you've hired somebody, right? You've got to pay them an engineer's salary. They're expensive. So what do you do? You give them the product to build. And, and you know, again, you're on your way to a false start. So technical founders fall victim to it. Non-technical founders fall victim to it. Entrepreneurs fall victim to it. It's, it's really one of the leading causes of, of startup death. And it's, uh, and it's really totally fixable. Well, it, it's such a painful lesson for me of thinking of like things that I, you know, things that I've successfully built that nobody wanted or not enough people wanted. You know what I mean? That that Steve Blank interview is like a therapy session for me. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm interested, you know, you see so many students, you guys, you have so many great guests come in. You're you just you're in such a great ecosystem there at Harvard. Do you have any examples of people who you feel like have done that well? Any stories of that you've seen of people who do that right? Yeah, a favorite story. My my student, the the entrepreneurs who built Rent the Runway. So some of the, your audience may be familiar with the with the business. It's it started as basically renting party dresses instead of buying and going to Bloomingdale's and paying eight hundred dollars for this thing. We'll rent it for a weekend for eighty dollars. And business was launched in 2009 and took off like a rocket. And, and you know, that people don't need, um, it, it's transformed beyond just party dresses to work apparel. And it's transformed from a, 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 they still do ad hoc rentals sort of one weekend at a time, but a big part of the business now is a subscription. It's kind of like the old Netflix red envelopes where you'd have three envelopes out at a time and you couldn't take a new movie out until you sent back one of the other ones in that red envelope their their subscription plan works the same way you can have three three outfits or whatever whatever the number is but these founders and this is before this would have been early 2009 before steve blank and eric reese and lean startup ideas were known to the world at large they were working on this stuff then I hadn't heard of it yet. And the the Rent the Runway team, in, in fashion, when you want to sell things, you, you often run what's called a trunk show, which is literally what it sounds like. You bring a trunk with samples of the apparel to a place, public place, where a bunch of people who are interested in buying it can come and tr try it on and look at it and so forth. So they ran the, the equivalent of trunk shows. Um, one of them was a Harvard College undergrad. So they went across to and found the Harvard College equivalent of a sorority that was about to have a big party. They rounded up all the dresses they could get their hands on, dry cleaned them, brought them in and said, you know, here, you, you know, you, you can rent this stuff. And, and then, uh, and people did in large numbers and mercifully brought the stuff back or returned it and, and returned it undamaged, which was a pleasant surprise to the entrepreneurs. And they got a lot of information. You know, they were able to meet with the, the, the women who rented the apparel and found out what styles they liked and sort of what they were looking for and what price points made sense. They did the next, the, the next trial at Yale where the other co-founder had gone to school. And this time the women could come as a group and talk to each other, but they couldn't try the stuff on. You know, so step-by-step, step, these are minimum viable product-like tests. Step-by-step, step, they're getting closer to the real thing. The third trial, and, and, and by the way, the uh, rental rate went up at Yale because they'd learned about the styles that work and so forth. Third trial is a few months later. Now they've assembled a mailing list and they basically say to the mailing list, you know, sort of a, a few thousand uh, potential customers, we're, we're ready to go. We don't have a website up yet. So here are PDFs of the things that are available for rent, just literally PDF photos. And, you know, and you can rent them and, and let's see who does it. And they, they weren't really ready to rent yet, but they, they were ready to sort of have people hit a button and sort of express interest and sort of be ready to put a credit card down. 
you know, and the, the response rate. So the response rate at Yale was 75% of the women rented, which is astounding. Response rate on the PDF test was only 5%, but these weren't women in a social group, sort of with the excitement of a party coming up. They were just sort of sitting at home alone, looking at a computer. And believe me, 5% was from the modeling. They'd done a whole bunch of, of really high quality economic modeling of the business, you know, if they got anything approaching 5% response rates to these offers, they were going to, they were going to crush it, which they ultimately did. But step by step, they got a lot of feedback. They, they were worried early on about the ick factor, you know, like, you know, like somebody has actually worn this thing before. Will, will women actually want to, and learned that that wasn't a problem, which was a really important thing to learn. And uh, just fantastic learning all the way through, every step of the way, you know, and, and in parallel. So that solves the demand problem for these entrepreneurs. In parallel, they needed supply. They needed, they couldn't afford to go into retail and buy things up at retail and then rent them. So they needed wholesale. And that means somebody actually has to give you permission to buy their stuff and rent the stuff. They had to go to the designers and 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 the the, the the dress manufacturers. And the first, you know, they got doors slammed in their face. The first few designers they spoke to, like, why in the world, this thing that I sell at Bergdorf's for a thousand dollars, would I let you rent it for twelve hundred dollars or one hundred and twenty dollars? And they they listened and listened, really savvy, listening to the customer. In this case, the supply side, not the demand side. And, and the designers eventually, they, they realized that what they were opening up was the opportunity to take that dress that's normally bought by a 40-year-old who has the financial means to pay $1,000 for a dress and make it available to a 25-year-old, which is a brand new market for these designers, introduce them to the brand. And by the way, the 25-year-old was going to look better. You know, the designer cares how people look in their, in, in their fashion. And so they just nailed it just right from the start. And, and it was very intuitive. I, I wish I could say I had the slightest bit to do with, with these savvy moves, but they figured it all out by themselves. So that's, that's an example of this going well. And I, and I could point to a lot of other examples of teams that did a good job with this and teams that missed the mark. You know, it's interesting in that story. I feel like this year, some of the the best guests we've had, I feel like there's this overarching theme of like, yeah, you need to be ambitious. Yeah, you need to have skill sets. Yeah, you need to be able to connect and persuade. And but but like it seems so often the thing that sets people really far apart is having all those things plus the ability to rein it in and be humble enough to listen or be humble enough to be open to disconfirming evidence or, you know, like the, your, your former colleague there at Harvard, Clayton Christensen talks about the, you know, asking what assumptions need to prove true and like mm -hmm. the humility to go through and say that X is, a, X is an assumption. We don't actually know that. And it, it's, it's been a funny lesson for me to hear over and over from some of the people I've respected the most of, it's not all those things you got told. It's all those things plus the humility to not do those things for a while. Yeah, it's tricky, you know, because you, you'll probably have heard the expression reality distortion field. A lot of people associated with Isaacson's amazing biography of Jobs, but people were using it to describe Steve Jobs long before that book. The, the original phrase actually comes from a Star Trek episode in the 60s and, and was used to describe Jobs um, at Macintosh in the early 80s when he had a team that would work 80-hour weeks, just months and months at a time. You know, because he'd inspired them to put a dent in the universe and sort of painted a, a vision. And so this is the tricky thing for the entrepreneur, because to, to mobilize a team, to raise the money, to attract talented team members, make 
partners do things they otherwise wouldn't be inclined to do because they've been benefiting from the status quo, you do have to seem sure of yourself and confident. And and and, and this blurry line between overconfidence and, and you know, getting having essentially the reality distortion field fold back on itself so you can't actually see what the universe is trying to tell you about your idea is is a huge peril for entrepreneurs. So, you know, hitting the right balance, because if you're tentative, if you're sort of blowing with the wind and in a sense too flexible, it isn't going to work. But on the other hand, if you're headstrong and, and, and won't budge off your idea, it's not going to work. So there's the zone in the middle. It's really hard to find. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in observations that you get to make from these different things. You know, I read your bio and there's a it, it seems like you do like 10 people's jobs. They're like, you're, you're at the HBS school, Harvard Innovation, you know, chair Harvard Innovation, Innovation Lab, co-chair at the Rock Center for Entrepreneurship, you know, the MBA program, the Harvard Technology Innovation Fellows Program. Like, it seems like you do about 10 people's jobs if I read this. But my guess is that you'd get to see so many stories and you get to like, not just meet great guests, but like see students and then see them come back as guests years later and stuff. Is that... Is my guess right on that? Yeah, you, you got it. I think it, it's, I don't, it, 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 it's, I wouldn't say short attention span, but that might be a good explanation for why somebody launches 14 different courses over, over a 10 or 15 year period. I, I just love nothing better than sort of diving into the start of a thing and sort of connecting all the dots, meeting the people that, that you need to meet to really make sense uh, of a new field. And, and then typically I toss the keys to a colleague and say, okay, you, you drive now. I'm going go, to go do another one. So that's, that's been my mode. And um, Can we talk about that for I, a second? I'm interested in any advice that you have for the rest of us who, you know, who are great at starting things and are maybe humble enough to realize like we're not great day-to-day managers. We're not, we're not the... We're not the farmers who are going to sit and watch the crop the whole rest of the way. We're the, you know, we're the hunter who's going to go over the mountain and realize, hey, there's new farmlands over here that you that we should have, you know, we should grow we should grow crops here while I'm hunting. Yeah, no, I don't know that I've got really insightful advice there. It's a thing like the the hunter the hunter farmer metaphor is a, a very good one. The world society the world needs both, right? They need people who are going to go blaze new trails and then they need people who are going to sort of lay the pavement down. And it's just I think really and there are people who are particularly good at the new thing and there are people that are good at building on on, on top of what's of, of a trail that somebody else has blazed. And so I just think it's important to to understand your own your own temperament and style and preferences. You know, Christensen's an interesting case in point. You brought him up a minute ago. There's a, there's a, a have you run across Hedgehog and Fox that have any of your guests talked about? That? Yeah. So it, it, in case there's audience members who ha- haven't heard those episodes, Isaiah Perlin, a famous philosopher, had an essay about two intellectual styles. The, the um, Hedgehog and Fox comes from Aesop's fable. And the, and the simple fable, it's, I think, just one sentence long, is that the, the fox knows many things but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And, and sort of in parallel with the my preference for just starting a bunch of new things and moving on to the next program, the next course, a lot of that's from having a, a fox's intellectual style. I just love the new thing. Christensen was the consummate hedgehog. Like he had this idea, you know, disruptive technology, disruptive innovation, and everywhere he looked, he saw it. I mean that's that's the hedgehog, and and boy, um, we're all we're, we're all better for it. So 
you know, again, you just need to know your own style and sort of what makes you happy. Yeah. And I thought about that, you know, you think about this, like the, the fox is so clever and does so many things, but the hedgehog curls up in the ball and, and the spikes keep the fox away from it. Right. Yep. And, yep. and there is, I mean, look at it as a percentage. It's something like, you know, 95%, 97% of society are wired more like farmers. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you are the fox, if you are the hunter, there's a lot of things in society that tell you you're doing it wrong, that tell you you're bad, that tell you, you know, that ADD is a disorder. You know what I mean? Like that. And don't get me wrong. Like it can get away from you. And you, you know, if you're a hardcore hunter at heart, Fox, like you can end up divorced. You can end up a divorced alcoholic. Don't get, do you know what I mean? Right. Like look at, yep. look at the special operations community. We have a lot of like SWAT team guys and, you know, Navy SEALs and special, you know, special forces operators that have been on the show and, you know, that can get away from them, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs and in tears too. And yet, because the world is like, you know, 95% of the world is run by people with the other thought process, it can be hard for people with more of that Fox thing to like, have a good self image and not feel like not feel like a disorganized failure and stuff like that. Any, any therapy for the rest of us? No, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. I think I, I agree with you. There's a lot of, there, there's a lot of warning lights that flash when, when, when you head down that path, but at the same time, we celebrate it as a society. So, so I, I, I think we're a little schizophrenic in society because you know, we make heroes out of Elon Musk and, and Steve Jobs and, and, and Richard Branson, and we should. And, and I think we need to do that because the people that go down that path, the vast majority of them are not going to become Richard Branson. They're going to fail and it's going to hurt. And, and, but we need people to try. So, so in a sense, we've got to have these myths um, and, and these heroes. And, and so, you know, I, th- I think in a sense, we're doing the right thing as a society. Only go down that path if you're really sure. That's the warning lights, you know, sort of the people t- people telling you you're crazy to do this and it's probably not going to work and it's going to be incredibly long hours and incredibly painful and it's going to mess up your family relationships, et cetera, all of which is true often. But on the other hand, you know, people, I mean, some people are, I think some people are inspired by the role models. Other people just have to do it, right? They just have a passion to build and start something and, and make a difference. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure scholars of entrepreneurship have speculated whether there's a gene for it and and there's no definitive research. There have been some tantalizing findings, but you can see why. Go ahead. Do you know this book, Driven? Oh, who wrote this? Have you heard of this one? I think it just came out this year. Dr. Bracknoff, maybe? No, don't, don't know it. He He wrote it with a Navy SEAL. And it's interesting because there's, yeah, Doug, Doug Brackman, I got to have him on the show, Doug Brackman and Randy Kelly. And he goes through some of those, some of the science aspects of like some of the genetic markers. I guess there was a a National Geographic thing about, you know, the explorer gene, the hunter gene, the like that, that, that thing that pushes people to go, you know, to, to have a perfectly good farm, but go look over the other side of the mountain, see if there's a better one over there, you know, kind of, kind of stuff. Anyways, I, I, I read a lot of these books so I can feel better about myself. Okay. And, and the fact that I'm like, you know, the joke inside the company is I'm the most likely guy to turn a, a, uh, 
a small contract into a multi-million dollar contract, but then also forget to send the invoice to get the money, right? <laughs> okay. So, yeah. so my point though is, anyways, it it is that might be an interesting one if you if you aren't familiar with that one. You probably know all the stuff in it, but maybe maybe there's something new for you. No, no, it's it's fascinating topic. I mean, the, the, the other caution I sort of put out there to listeners who are sort of wondering about their personality type and whether it fits the entrepreneur model is. There's a mountain of academic research. We all want this to be true. We all want there to be a, a, an entrepreneurial personality. And it just makes intuitive sense. Risk-taking, challenge authority, and, and you know, sort of bias for action, all this stuff. Everybody who's ever looked at it can't find it. You know, it turns out that entrepreneurs come in all stripes and colors and shapes and, and temperaments and so forth. I, for the book, did some research on early stage founders, people who'd raised between a half million and three million of, of venture capital over some period of time. And I gave them enough time for the business to either keep growing or, or stumble and, and in some cases fail outright and asked them a whole bunch of questions about how they ran the thing and how they raised the money and who they recruited. But I, I also asked them some questions about their self-perception of their personality. You know, would people who know you well describe you as charismatic, as persistent, as, and there was no statistical difference between the founders that were doing really well and the founders that were on a path to failure across all of the 20 different personality, self-assessed personality. I think you got to be careful with self-assessment. The only one that mattered to your farmer point was methodical. And, and the successful founders, um, in fact, described themselves as more methodical than, than their uh, struggling counterparts. So make of that what you will. Dang it, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm in trouble, though. Well, to me, and, and I, my guess of what to do about that, and I want you to tell me if you see it differently, is that it just means that your, your team has to be rounded out differently. You know, is that, is that a right. fair assumption? Like. To totally, totally. You know, when Fred Smith builds Federal Express, he's got a vision and he's not going to send the invoices, but he better have a vice president of operations that will do that. Exactly right. You know, I, I do think about some of my biggest business failures has been somehow reverting to, you know, to self-employed solopreneurship with a bunch of helpers, you know, kind of like tyrant with a thousand helpers kind of approach. And like, yep. it was a wake up call from one of my friends and mentors, Josh Steinle. He, he got me to read the Sean Aker book, you know, Sean, who did the happiness advantage study at Harvard. Do you know what I'm talking about? His um, book, Big Potential, where he talks about you take a superstar from one situation, he goes to the next situation, he's not a superstar anymore. And it's because he, yeah. didn't, he didn't realize he was like part of a consolation, you know? Yep. And, and so I called my old, my old partners back from the fund I ran 10 years ago. And said, like, I don't want to do this without you guys. And the one is my brother, who's like as much the opposite end of the spectrum as possible. Like to the point we can't even work together sometimes because we drive each other so nuts on certain things. And after 15 years working together, we're finally doing better. But we have a third party partner in between us, my mentor, John, who's like the referee between the brothers because we're such extreme, extreme different parts of the spectrum. I love it. But yeah, and that's such a... Go That's ahead. a great insight. My, my, my colleague at HBS, Boris Groisberg, has done similar work, and he looked at equity analysts in Wall Street firms, stars, you know, top-rated institutional investor analysts, and he showed that when they moved to a new firm, you know, they, they slide down in the ratings, basically, because they, they had a network of relationships at the old place, sort of exactly the same finding. And, and I think it works for entrepreneurs, too. That's why you, you see teams move from place to place to place. 
Well, you know, one of my very favorite questions I typically leave to the end. I, I want to ask it now, though. What's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Hmm. Now you caught me by surprise. Probably to not cut and run. I, I had a couple of episodes when I was young. I was a, a on a baseball team as the catcher, batting 125. And you know, I think I had the lowest batting average in my school's history as a starting catcher. I was a senior starting and, you know, semi-competent on defense and, and terrible at bat. And the coach benched me and, and put a junior in. I obviously needed a groom if I'd thought for a second about it. But, you know, I stormed off the field that day, quit the team. And, you know, my teammates thought I was insane and probably never spoke to me again appropriately. Uh, you know, just a, a sort of a typical high school lack of maturity. And I saw that pattern recur several times early in my career, you know, when basically I'd get feedback that I wasn't the greatest and, you know, and sort of you, you run from the situation this and, and, you know, basically somebody's sitting me down and saying, you can't run from this one. You sort of got to muscle through it and, and sort of figure out what you want and, you know, sort of don't, don't be nursing your ego. And it, and it happened. I mean, the, the place that made the biggest difference, I nearly got fired when I came up um, from promotion from assistant professor to associate professor. I had done what I thought was great work and the, the, the world that reviews that work didn't, didn't quite agree. So I, I nearly got fired, could have quit and, and maybe should have, but got the advice to sort of put your head down, sort of absorb the blow, you'll get over it, figure out what you have to do to, to be successful and and, and uh, yeah, it was good advice. Here I am now, tenured faculty member, 15 years later. You know, again, for me, though, that goes back to that humility thing of like, take the hit, get honest about what it's going to take and settle in for that long road, you know? Yeah. No, it's easy to run. If Carol Dweck is a psychologist at Harvard, she's got this famous framework, growth mindset and fixed mindset. Yeah. You're nodding. Yeah, You've run across it somewhere. Love her book. And the people with the people with the fixed mindset sort of believe that you are what you are, that basically you're endowed with some skills and traits and attributes and, and you're never going to get any better. And that's, I think, what I, what I had fallen victim to, right? And, and so the person with a fixed mindset doesn't want to put themselves into positions to fail, and they'll often not take risks, whereas the growth person assumes, well, you know, yeah, I'm probably going to fail, but I'm going to learn from the experience and expand and figure out if this works for me and, and keep going and getting better. That was a pretty powerful, you know, if, if, if you want a book that had a big impact, in, and I think it was consistent with the advice I got on not quitting. Yeah, I, I echo that, that mindset book from Carol Dweck. I mean, even just my parenting, I feel like it's like the be one of the best parenting books I've ever wrote, read. You know, I'm interested in what that looked like for you when you, you know, you put your head down and put in the work to, to improve at the skill sets you thought you needed to. What did that look like? So yeah, you came up for promotion. And so the odds at a place like Harvard Business School, half of the assistant professors at the five-year point, I'll use the words get fired. No one where I work would ever say anybody got fired, right? You weren't promoted, but half got fired at the five-year point. And then of the of the survivors, half make it to tenure. So you've got a one in, at, at the 10-year point. So you got a one in four chance of getting through the gauntlet. And, and so this was the first step. You know, I'd still had the second step to go when I, when I hit the speed bump. And yeah, you know, in a sense, it was just foolish of me because I'd been through a tournament before. I, I had made a junior partner in McKinsey, which is 
you know, the odds there were at the time I, I was there were probably one in five of the people who started as an associate made it to junior partner. And so, you know, I knew that you just basically have to figure out what the organization's looking for and deliver it. It's just not terribly complicated. And, and amazingly, I had failed to do that as an assistant professor at this place. I was so caught up, you know, the internet had just taken off and, and I was so excited about building a course about internet businesses. And I just slapped the thing together as fast as I could. And that's not what people are looking for from an assistant professor. They want to see, you know, where are the powerful new ideas? How are they rigorously supported? And all it would have taken was sort of talking to a few good mentors to, to figure out I was not on the path, but I didn't have the brains to reach out and, and ask for help. I was so excited and, and so wrapped up in the sort of the, the ego charge of, of having sort of hundreds of students wanting into the course because the internet was brand new and everybody thought it was a path to success and, 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 and riches. So yeah, so I, you know, I just slowed down, thought about, they gave me two years and said, by the way, there's no guarantee that at the end of two years, this is going to work for you. And, and I just polished up a few jewels, cases with teaching notes that explain to other instructors how you teach this thing, course notes. And the stuff was, I, I think it was good for students, but what it was really good for were the reviewers who were sort of looking for the rigor and the new ideas and so forth. And, and so I did much less of much higher quality and, and just sort of scanned the landscape to sort of figure out what, what was quality in the place where I was working. And it worked. And then I got tenure. And now I can do whatever I want. Almost anything I want. <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty cool. It does let pe tenure does let people take risks. <laughs> I, will, I will say that it's a weird institution. Interesting. Listen, this has been such a fun conversation for me. I'm really looking forward to to getting a copy of the book. Anything anything you want to leave with today? Um. No, just for the for the folks who aspire to be entrepreneurs, if if you find your way to the book, there's a letter to a first time founder that closes the book, and and you'll see this in print. It's been it'll be excerpted on I hope on March 30th by Startup Nation. So so keep an eye out for it if you if you happen to want to come across it that way. And the letter makes a bunch of point, which is there's a whole bunch of advice for entrepreneurs. It's the conventional wisdom on what makes a great entrepreneur be persistent, be frugal, grow, focus. And, and the point I make is all of this is good advice. I mean, there's, there's a reason that you hear this stuff over and over again, but if you take it too far and you follow the advice blindly, in, in a lot of cases, these, these simple messages for about what makes a great entrepreneur can actually get you into trouble. You know, so if you're too eager to grow, you'll fall victim to the false start. And, 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 so this letter to a first-time founder sort of maps this conventional wisdom to some of the failure paths. And, and I would just sort of leave your listeners with the advice to slow down, you know, go with your gut for sure some of the time. But if it's a big, important decision, your gut will obscure the way you see the world, right? You'll be racked by emotion and you're not going to think clearly. So slow down, write down the pros and cons of what you're thinking about, show it to people you trust sleep on it, maybe two nights, and, and and what Kahneman calls slow thinking, fast thinking, slow thinking, let that be your guide. It'll it'll um, it'll go a long way to making you a successful entrepreneur. Yeah, solid advice. Thanks again. Uh, thanks again for doing this. Jess, yeah, it was fantastic. A lot of fun. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, bye, everyone.